Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm not going to answer it. It's a sick question. You're a sick fuck, and I'm not going to answer it. I'm not telling you nothing. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. We will not be contributing to this episode whatsoever, except via impressions. So we are here in a special bonus episode to really, truly wrap up our season on the films of 1980. We had so many great options that we decided to do a couple of extra episodes after the end to look at some of the biggest movies of 1980 that we hadn't talked about already. So hopefully people, if you're listening, you checked out our episode on The Empire Strikes Back. And if you are listening on the Patreon, we very much appreciate it. And we are here now to talk about Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, which not only is one of the best and biggest movies of 1980, but is often really at this point considered one of the greatest movies ever made, which I guess is something you could say about The Empire Strikes Back too. So I feel like if we had two of the greatest movies ever made, uh, at least according to consensus, we had to talk about them. So that's what we're here to do. Yeah, I'm not going to say that people revere Empire in the same way that R- Raging Bull is revered, but that's okay. But, you know, we had a lot of listeners who wanted us to talk about Raging Bull. This, as you know from the epilogue, was my other choice, but um, we've already covered Scorsese twice. So as a bonus, it feels right. But uh, yeah, man, just a pleasure to revisit this one. Yeah, I mean, and I not to not to make this episode about Empire Strikes Back, but I think people do review. But I'm going to keep talking about Empire Strikes Back. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> anyway, both of these movies revered in different ways, but by very, very large numbers of people. So we'll talk about Raging Bull, I guess. Um, maybe we can connect the two of them back together somehow. I don't know, but. Raging Bull, unlike The Empire Strikes Back, which of course we said was, you know, the number one movie at the box office, this movie is now considered an all-time classic, but at the time was not a particularly big success. It did have some trouble with getting wide distribution and uh, ultimately only grossed uh, $23.4 million on its budget of $18 million. So made a little bit of money, but certainly not I'm sure, as much as a studio would have hoped for it to make. Although it was, even at the time, pretty well regarded. Um, It was surprising to see, to me, it got some mixed-ish reviews from critics, but certainly uh, a lot of critics who thought it was brilliant, and it was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director for Martin Scorsese, Best Supporting Actor for Joe Pesci, Best Supporting Actress for Kathy Moriarty, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound. And it won two awards, Best Actor for Robert De Niro and Best Editing for Thelma Schoonmaker, who, as we've talked about multiple times in our episodes on Martin Scorsese films, was his and is his long, long, long time collaborator as an editor on basically every movie he's ever made. Yeah, and Josh, it lost best sound to Empire Strikes Back. Oh, and you thought that mm. wasn't going to be relevant. Um, what's funny about all this is like, you know, we talked about it in Ordinary People. It's like, hey, should that have won best picture? A lot of people say Raging Bull. Should Scorsese have won best director? Probably, you know. And then you look at Michael Chapman, and I didn't see Tess. I know we've talked about it, but Tess is what beat this out. And you watch this, and this is like one of the most beautiful and 
innovatively shot films of all time. I'm shocked that it didn't win cinematography. Yeah, I mean, all of that. The editing, of course, which which it did win for, is also fantastic. And yeah. so so much of what's great about this movie is the way that Scorsese uses those kinds of cinematography and the editing to take this unconventional approach to a conventional kind of movie, a sports biopic, a boxing movie. And that is what elevates it in a lot of ways. I think, um, Josh, maybe some of those reviews were because of uh, what you're getting to, which is like fight scenes had never been shot that way before, where it's like almost POV and the camera's the opponent and you're in up close. And it was brutal back, you know, when that first came out, but beautiful as well. And then the other thing, Josh, I think we mentioned this before, but, you you, you know, Thelma Schoonmaker, most uh, nominations, most wins ever for an editor tied. And this was voted by the Editors Guild, the Motion Pictures Editors Guild, as the best edited film of all time. Yeah, I can see that. It, it is the way that this film is put together is very, very powerful. And I mean, obviously, and we'll talk about this more, all of the elements of this film work really well, but you take that raw material and you stitch it together the way that she does, and that really elevates it to another level. Right, and credit to her and Scorsese because, you know, there was the Mardik Martin draft and then the Paul Schrader draft, and then De Niro and Scorsese kind of crafted beyond that where the movie ended up. But I guess from Paul Schrader on, there were like a lot of uh, cutbacks in between the nightclub Jake LaMotta of when the movie kind of ends and begins, and then also that those were like interstitial in there um, as opposed to what we see, which is just a bookend of those pieces and then letting the story tell itself. Right. And I think that works better. And that is something that I think a lot of biopics do these days, which is we start with the character somewhere later in life doing something that causes them to reflect on their previous life, um, which has become a bit of a cliche. But I, I feel like this movie handles it well, and it's better that it doesn't keep coming back to him you know, later in life until the very end, we we get it. And then we're immersed in his early career. And then we revisit it back at the end. I think that works well. There's a natural momentum. And um, just, man, I want to add, a, you know, and I know we're, we're just starting here, but I think this is the best uh, opening title sequence in film history. Just that shot of De Niro kind of dancing around in the ring with that beautiful music behind it in the credits. It just like is breathtaking, like how beautiful it is right away. It definitely draws you in right away and shows you that this isn't going to be the kind of boxing movie that people had been watching prior to this. And, and that's right, right from the start. This movie, I don't know if you had it. Obviously, it won a ton of other awards. Most notably, it was nominated at the Golden Globes as well for Best Picture Drama, and De Niro won the Best Actor Award there, and a, a ton of others. So it was interesting to me to read that it maybe had a mixed critical response, although I found mostly positive reviews. But um, awards-wise, this really cleaned up, and I'm sure that helped, even if it hadn't done huge numbers at the box office, for people to start paying attention to it later and take a look at it um, as it you know, came out on home video and stuff later in the 1980s. I'm sure that made a difference. Well, there was just like you said, there's so many, you know, the BAFTAs with uh, Joe Pesci winning like best new leading newcomer. And yeah, I think I mean, this is one that tracked over time better than it did originally. Right. Like and, you know, we always bring up Ebert, who I'm sure you're going to mention. Uh, who had it as number two as the best movies of nineteen of nineteen eighty behind the Black Stallion, and then 
Siskel had it as number one, and then they both had it as number one as the best movie of the decade after all that reflection. Yeah, I guess the Black Stallion doesn't hold up Black, as well. Yeah, yeah. The Black Stallion didn't hold up, I guess. Yeah, and then now Ebert got to the point where he's called it one of the best uh, 10 movies ever made. Yeah, and I mean, and I did, I watched the Siskel and Ebert segment as as I always try to do if I can find it. And they're very, very, very enthusiastic from the start. I mean, they already are saying, you know, immediately in this initial review, this is uh, the best American film of 1980. And uh, Ebert talks about, because it came out late in 1980, and Ebert talks about how he did not think that 1980 was let's say an awesome movie year, but mm. um, this movie really kind of renews his faith or whatever. So they definitely, they gave it two thumbs up. They both thought it was fantastic. So, I mean that, you know, again, from a critical standpoint, and certainly there's plenty of movies that are now well-regarded that I'll go back and see Siskel and Ebert just kind of trash them or just be completely unimpressed. And that wasn't the case here at all. They both really, really like this movie. Just to kind of further that point of like the um, reassessment of the love, when AFI did their poll of the 100 greatest films of all time in uh, 1998. It was ranked 24th. When AFI did their uh, poll of 100 greatest films of all time in 2007, it was ranked 4th. So even all those movies that were made since that point in time, it jumped up. Right. Yeah, it's continued. So, you know, not only between 80 and 98, but, you know, then nine years later, it, it continues to get reassessed. And I feel like now it's almost to the point where it's like, a cliche like oh you're you're into film i bet you have a raging bull poster or something like that and i love that bad thing yeah. yeah no it's not necessarily a bad <laughs> thing but i think it's so like sort of leaped over like reassessment and become uh this it, obvious I, choice it's it's citizen kane it's the godfathers one and two it's raging right. bull it's good fellas right it's like but yeah you're right it's it's right there yeah yeah so uh, again, yeah, critics, a lot of the critics, uh, the, anything that I found mostly was positive. Uh, Roger Ebert, like we said, was a huge, huge fan, gave it four out of four stars and weirdly spends almost his whole review focused on the relationship between Jake LaMotta, Robert De Niro's character and Vicky, his wife, played by Kathy Moriarty, which was really uh, to Roger Ebert, the most fascinating thing. So I kind of pulled a little from different parts of his review. He said, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull is a movie about brute force, anger, and grief. It is also, like several of Scorsese's other movies, about a man's inability to understand a woman, except in terms of the only two roles he knows how to assign her, virgin or whore. Raging Bull remains close to its three basic elements, a man, a woman, and prize fighting. This man we see is not, I think, supposed to be any more subtle than he seems. He does not have additional, quote, qualities to share with us. He is an engine driven by his own rage. The equation between his prize fighting and his sexuality is inescapable, and we see the trap he's in. Lamada is the victim of base needs and instincts that, in his case, are not accompanied by the insights and maturity necessary for him to cope with them. Well, it's interesting, though, because he does... You know, there's that whole scene where um, Vicky is telling uh, Joe that that Jake never, never wants to have sex with her at some point. So I think those desires separated somewhere along the path and uh, those elements or needs separated along the path. Right. I think that's that's one of the things the sort of like dichotomies here is that once he has her, he doesn't want her. 
but he also doesn't want anyone else to have her. And so he puts her in this really unpleasant position and, you know, she's uh, stuck and she's so young. I, I, I had to kind of keep reminding myself through this movie how young Vicky is supposed to be. And Kathy Moriarty was only 18 when she made this film, but she definitely looks like she could be older. And of course, the film takes place over the course of a number of years and the character does get a bit older. But, uh, you know, I think we're not used to the idea that this adult man has married a 16-year-old. So have to maybe remind ourselves how young she is. Um, but it is a major part of the movie. I think Ebert maybe fixates on it a little much, considering that there are so many other aspects. And he barely mentions like Joe Pesci as as Lamada's brother, Joe, who, of course, is a, a, an extremely important element of this film. But um, it is definitely a theme with Scorsese. We talked a lot about this when we did our episode on Who's That Knocking at My Door? Harvey Keitel's character in that movie has the same kind of hangups with women and the same difficulty, even if he's the less violent person, maybe overall. So something that Scorsese is interested in here, definitely. Yeah, it all goes back to machismo versus insecurities and what is that machismo masking? And, you know, are these male characters able to ever confront or accept uh, whatever emotions and insecurities they have? Right. And obviously not. I mean, Harvey Keitel's character in, in Who's That Knocking at My Door maybe has a bit of self-awareness at one point, but Jake LaMotta is not a self-aware guy at all. No, you know who is R2-D2 from Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Thank you. R2-D2 would never mistreat women. I don't think he's interested one way or the other. <laughs> but he's respectful. <laughs> he is, he is. Uh, Jake LaMotta, that's, that is an interesting point because like, you know, De Niro is beloved, obviously, as an American actor. And, um, you know, this is this is the role that, probably defined his career more than any other. Right. And Jake LaMotta, I mean, look, not just a flawed character, but does really bad things like you're talking about. You know, he, he beats his wife. He, he, the real Jake LaMotta admits to like, you know, raping a woman and everything like that. And, you know, he beats the crap out of his brother in front of his family. Like, but, um, De Niro, you know, it's, it's an interesting protagonist in that way because he's not a good person per se. Right. That was one of the things that struck me this time. And I hadn't seen it in a while and I didn't really remember a ton about it. But it's like Jake LaMotta is horrible. And the fact that the movie is still fascinating is really impressive because yeah. you don't like this guy. And Scorsese isn't trying to get you to like him. Um, he's showing all the horribleness, which is fascinating, considering that it's based on LaMotta's own book. And LaMotta was a consultant on it. And, you know, this shows him in a very, very poor light. I got to a point where even in the bring, I was kind of like rooting for him to lose because I hated him so much, but I was still fascinated to watch him. Yeah. And the real Amada, I mean, he became a beloved fixture, you know, as a whatever nightclub circuit comedian or, right. you know, act. And then he and Vicky remained friends after all of that. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that as well. I guess. I don't know. Uh, so Vincent Canby in the New York Times was also pretty positive. He said, Taking as his starting point the troubled life of Jake LaMotta, the tough New York City kid who slugged his way to the World Middleweight Boxing Championship in 1948 and then went on to lose almost everything, Martin Scorsese has made his most ambitious film as well as his finest. Though Raging Bull has only three principal characters, it is a big film, its territory being the landscape of the soul. It's exceedingly violent as well as poetic and, finally, 
humane in the way of unsentimental fiction that understands that a life, any life, can only be appreciated when the darkness that surrounds it is acknowledged. Though it's a movie full of anger and nonstop physical violence, the effect of Raging Bull is lyrical. To witness Jake's fury is to swing through the upper atmosphere of the emotions. It's breathtaking and a little scary. Yeah, Josh, you had just mentioned that whole thing about how like the dichotomies of these things, right? Like it's it's such beautiful physical violence in the ring. And then, you know, when he's beating up his wife, it's just uh, uh, horrible to watch, you know? So it, it is, it, it, there's a lot of dichotomies in this movie. I took one other quote from the um, Vincent Camby review on Kathy Moriarty. Uh, he, he says, either she is one of the film finds of the decade or Mr. Scorsese is Svengali, perhaps both. <laughs> yeah, I will. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about Kathy Moriarty's career later, but, you know, she shows incredible. Pro- I mean, Pesci, too. Joe Pesci had barely done anything. Yeah, they were both kind of plucked out of obscurity for this film and both really show amazing, amazing promise. And, you know, she had some reasons that her career was kind of derailed and she never really became that big, that big star the way that Pesci did. But she is. I mean, and I think it's tough just as any for any actor to match De Niro, like you said, I mean, that that performance is so overpowering and not in a bad way, but it's just right. He's not eating scenery in any means. He's just there's an intense like just force about him. Right. So to not be overpowered by his performance, I mean, that takes a lot. And and both Kathy Moriarty and Joe Pesci manage that and they they go right toe to toe with him in, in their scenes. Definitely. I think so. And uh, I do want to hear more about that because you know, like you, like you just said, like Pesci became, uh, especially as we're researching our new season of 92, right? Like, and you look at the nineties, he was as big a star as there was. Right. And, um, you know, Moriarty went on more to become like a TV actress and a supporting player. And, and I don't, I don't have that information. So I'm interested to hear what, um, what you found out about that. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, I think, you know, shortly here. <laughs> and, you know, I want one thing I wanted to go back to was you said the the violence in the ring is beautiful. And then we see the sort of ugliness of the violence against his wife and, and against his brother. But I, what, one thing that struck me, too, about this movie is that sometimes the violence in the ring is also very ugly. And especially he beats up that one boxer who he's uh, so insecure that that Vicky makes an offhand remark that this guy is good looking and he just becomes super consumed with that idea. And the way he beats that guy up is is brutal, is awful. And you know, there's a shot of the blood like spatters onto the announcers and it really shows like this is a, a horrifying sport or it can be a horrifying sport in some ways. Yeah, I, I'm going to just disagree with you on the word choice. I didn't find any uh, brutal. I agree with, but not ugly. It was I mean, again, we're talking about someone who's taken a form and has elevated it and shot it in a different way. And even in this film, shot it in different ways. And it's just like uh, it almost takes your breath away with what he's able to achieve. And like now you see how much it's influenced it. But I I think, you know, those are probably the best fight scenes ever, uh, boxing scenes ever, ever put on film. Yeah, I, I was very, very impressed. And I think one of the reasons that this stuff works is that Scorsese doesn't like boxing. And he was reluctant to make a movie about a boxer. And he was kind of in a career place where he didn't really have a lot of options. And this was a movie that was going to be made and he was able to direct it. But I think because he comes from that perspective, he's not interested. So many boxing movies, you know, even now are like, let's show you and, and many sports movies, too. 
of any sport. Let's show you every move. Let's show you exactly how we got to the place where this person wins and this person loses. And that to me, as someone who also doesn't care about the sport is boring. And so I love the way that Scorsese approaches this, which is like, I'm just gonna show you these little glimpses. I'm gonna show you what I think matters. And I'm gonna show you what's important for the characters. And I'm not gonna show you like a whole boxing match because I don't care and neither should you. And that goes that goes also back to Thelma Schoonmaker and just the rhythm that they added this piece in. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I did want to get some negative in here. Uh, Pauline Kale in The New Yorker was not a fan. Uh, and as always, she wrote a very, very long review. So <sighs> I just kind of kind of grabbed a couple things from it. Uh, she says, what Robert De Niro does in this picture isn't acting exactly. I'm not sure what it is. Though it may at some level be awesome, it definitely isn't pleasurable. De Niro seems to have emptied himself out to become the part he's playing and then not got enough material to refill himself with. His Lamada is a swollen puppet with only bits and pieces of a character inside and some semi-religious, semi-abstract concepts of guilt. Listening to Jake and Joey go at each other, like the macho clowns in Cassavetti's movies, I know I'm supposed to be responding to a powerful, ironic realism, but I just feel trapped. Jake says, you dumb fuck, and Joey says, you dumb fuck, and they repeat it and repeat it. And I think, what am I doing here watching these two dumb fucks? <laughs> well, what is she, a dumb fuck or something like that? Um, first of all, I mean, Polly and Kel knows this, you know, that's New York Italian, uh, macho men, men talking to each other at a different time. You, you could have a whole conversation just saying you dumb fuck back and forth and it'd have different meanings each time. So I think she knows better than that. Um, secondly, like, uh, you had kind of alluded to it and obviously they became one of the most successful film pairings in, in cinema history, but their chemistry crackles right from the beginning. And that Joey character is so important because he's the only one who can talk to Jake LaMotta in the way that he talks to him, you know, like no one else can talk to him like that. And he does hold his own against him. Uh, that also uh, Paul Schrader, when he got a hold of the script, there was no Joey character, you know, that was, uh, that was his ad from the Marduk Martin original version. So like, you know, we, we're all Paul Schrader fans, but like, what a genius he can be sometimes. Right. And I'm not, I don't necessarily agree with what she says. Um, to, to One thing to her credit, like I said, it's a very long review, so I'm not going to obviously read the whole thing, but she does talk about how well Scorsese captures the realism of those neighborhoods and life in sort of the Italian American Bronx in the 1940s. But she feels like it's just background and that there's nothing to the characters. And I don't agree. And I think actually, you know, Vincent Canby makes a point that refutes this, that she's saying there's no depth to Jake LaMotta. And Vincent Canby's point is that like, that is who Jake LaMotta is. Yeah. He is a guy with no mm -hmm. depth and that's what we're watching. Right. And you do get some of that. And, and maybe that's why, like when he's, when he finally goes to jail and he breaks down, Oh man, that is such a powerful scene where he's crying and, you know, I'm not the animal that they think I am. Like, um, you know, that's how you win an Oscar if you can do that that well, you know? So, yeah, but yeah, man, I just, I just think that all adds to it because, you know, we always talk about environment as character and neighborhood as character. Larry, I'm going to, I'm going to fucking kill your dog and I'm going to eat your dog. <laughs> it's just <laughs> such crazy stuff that goes on. And, um, uh, it's fun until it becomes not fun with that, with Jake Lovato, I would say.
Right. I don't know if I would ever call any of it fun. I mean, I think to me, Jake is horrifying right from the start. But but that's what's fascinating about about him and about the movie. So, Jason, I know, you know, as we've talked about multiple times, you're a huge Scorsese fan. When did you first see this film? Uh, yeah, he's my favorite director. I keep saying yeah, as if like, because uh, I think I'm so excited. I have so much to say. Bah, 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 bah. Like, I love a lot of other directors, but I think, as I've said before, Scorsese is so influential that he's influencing generations of people who don't know he's influencing them because their their favorite directors are like a Tarantino or, you know, Wes Anderson or whatever. And they don't they don't see that blueprint. But I think. Huh. I wonder if it was high school or college. I mean, you know, I took that class in college on Scorsese and I don't remember the first time I saw it and I hadn't watched it in years. And um, just right from the jump, it got me again. It's just a, a wonderful, I think it lives up to all of the accolades it has received over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see it in high school or college. Um, and I'm, as we've talked about, less uh, over the moon on Scorsese or whatever. I, I feel like a lot of his films I watch and I'm impressed with the way that they're made, but they don't always engage me as much. And I think I felt that way about this the first time I was looking on Letterboxd. I saw it for the first time in 2007. I'm sure just as a like, I should see this movie. And so I watched it and I had given it three stars. And I think my response was like, oh, I'm glad I watched that. And I did appreciate it more this time though. Um, and I think, again, because I didn't remember a whole lot about it, I was really struck by the fact that Jake LaMotta is such a terrible person and the movie doesn't shy away from that at all and it makes you so engrossed with watching this guy and studying this guy even as it never tries to apologize for him or hold back or make him seem more sympathetic and that to me was really fascinating of course the filmmaking craft the editing the cinematography as we've talked about is also fantastic and that contributes to it so i i did appreciate it a lot more this time i think than last time i'm happy to hear that how about you dave uh, first time was uh, somewhere around like 19 or 20, something like that. I remember I, I went on like a little mini marathon, like catching up on various classics that I had never seen. I watched the Godfather around that time too. Uh, and this was the first time since then. And I liked it back then, but I loved it this time. It just blew me away. Oh, uh, that's good to know. Josh, one thing, I, um, when you're talking about the craft that's like, you know, when you're like young and studying film and like, Oh, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Like, there's all these like directors uh, and you know what I'm talking about. They're just pulling out tricks to pull out tricks. And then you watch raging bull and you're like, man, this guy is mixing mediums in that, you know, you have that sequence of um, colorized home movies against all this pristine black and white and camera speeds and then stills versus, um, you know, kind of those action shots and it, everything serves a purpose to heighten it. And it's just like a, a, a mastercraft in, in how to, tell a story. Right. You never feel like, oh, he's just doing this to show off or because he doesn't know how to tell the story. And so he's trying to distract from that or whatever. It definitely all does serve a purpose. And I think some filmmakers, like you mentioned, maybe not the people that you mentioned, but other lesser filmmakers who are influenced by Scorsese, they take the showiness that they seem to see and they don't marry that with actually knowing what they're doing or knowing what kind of story they're telling or how to serve it. I think so. Like, you know, we've already talked about how 92 is our next season. And then, you know, the birth of Tarantino there and Tarantino is a, a great, uh, does this great as well. But like, when you look at the people that they've influenced together and then you go through the mid nineties, like, man, you're like, okay, 
but what are you actually saying? I get it that you can, you know, you know, tilt the camera and change the speed on it, but what are you actually trying to say here? Right, right, right. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot here, but uh, anything else in particular about the background of this movie you want to point out? Well, Josh, you had mentioned that, um, you know, this was kind of at a low point in his career after he had OD'd and, you know, I mean, um, uh, we had already talked about how New York, New York was a big flop and, you know, we were getting to the end of this new Hollywood thing. Although he did put out The Last Waltz after that, which is uh, uh, one of my favorite music documentaries. But Scorsese thought this was going to be his last Hollywood movie, you know, when he finally agreed to take it on. He said, fine, I'll do it. And then I'll go to Europe and just make little art movies, which I'm sure he would have been very happy doing, you know, but um, it's funny how something that he fought against uh, really saved his career. Right. And we talked about in New York, New York, how that is like a movie made by cocaine. And you can see that that was maybe the height of that excess, that there was really nowhere else for Scorsese to go with that. And, uh, you know, and obviously he got to the most extreme point there and ODing and and this this movie feels like you know a reflection on coming back from that brink I think so it's it's I mean obviously that's horrible for him and it was a horrible time in his life I'm sure but it it almost feels like it serves this movie well right I mean and and that was when he finally was able to accept it was when he was able to relate to a boxer on the ropes trying to fight for his life right 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 so we will come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on Raging Bull. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, which, as we've said, is considered by many uh, officially uh, amongst awards-giving groups and whatnot, and just among film fans in general, to be one of the greatest films ever made. So, uh, of course, how much else can we really add to this discourse? We'll, we'll try, though. Oh, I thought that was the end of the episode. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> nothing else. Thanks for thanks for signing up for the Patreon. We have nothing else to say. Goodbye. Um, well, Jason, I mean, I, I, I like this movie, but I think, you know, your, your appreciation for it is on another level. So anything else in particular... Hey, I... Yeah, I don't want to just, you know, hand job this whole thing, Josh. But um <laughs> but I mean, it's almost like everyone peaked at the same time, right? You know, De Niro was already peaking as just uh his most powerful performances in Scorsese, you know, and and then you could say they did it again with Goodfellas ten years later or whatever, but they were all hitting this peak of their craft and Thelma Schoonmaker. And then just uh one thing we should mention, and Dave, you should jump in on that, that use of uh Mascagni's uh, Cavaliera Rusticana, that that music is so striking compared to the violence you're seeing and everything. Um, so I, I don't know. It just everything. There's nothing about this, whether you love it or don't love it, that I think you would be like, no, he should have changed that or left that out or done something else there. Like it all the the puzzle fits perfectly here. Yeah, it does. It does. So and Dave, this is this is not a movie with an original score, right? It's just all this, these classical pieces and things like that. Um, right. So right. Did, did and that some of that like pop of the day of, that he, right. You know, right. Loves. But did sure. that strike you in a particular way? I mean, I, I think it probably is just meant to, you know, to clash with all the violence on screen and, you know, it works so perfectly. I mean, that's 
the kind of thing that Scorsese would do, you know, and he does it so perfectly here. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really excellent. And it's it's noticeable, you know, like Jason, like you're saying, as soon as that happens, you as a viewer start thinking, whoa, this is not the way that I've seen this done before. Right. There's an elevation to it right from the beginning. Like I just I'm I forgot that opening credit sequence where it's literally just a static shot of him kind of bouncing around in the ring with that classical music and oh man it's just a perfect shot you know and um you know dave it's it's funny because in one way i agree with you like it is about the opposite of it right but it's also like boxing is known as the sweet science right so they're talking about uh again masters of their crafts achieving this level that not that a lot of people couldn't reach back then and these are why like lamada and sugar ray robinson are so revered because boxers like my favorite boxer growing up was Arturo Thundergatti, and he wasn't necessarily the greatest boxer, but he was known as the blood and guts warrior, right? He would always engage and box and fight and like never worried about getting hurt or injured or knocked out. And uh, he had a trilogy with Mickey Ward that made them both legends. And then there are people like Floyd Mayweather who are like scientifically incredibly skilled but they're not they don't engage at that level as a fighter like they they kind of dance around and and don't engage and they win on technicalities and points and Lamada was a fighter who would go in and and would just take a beating and give a beating and i think um there's uh, a real relationship between a blue collar boxing audience and those type of fighters I mean, I don't know anything really about boxing or sports as comes up at every time we talk about a sports related movie. Um, and I'm sure you're right about the way that those fighters are revered by people who love boxing. But I never get the sense from this movie that Scorsese reveres fighters or boxing in any way. And again, I think that's what I really like about this movie is that it's not a movie about respect for boxing in a way you i feel like you could watch this movie and come away from it saying boxing should be banned you know maybe sure. that's a slightly extreme <laughs> response but but that's exactly what i'm saying on the one hand you're talking about these dichotomies playing against each other and on the other hand you're saying how they work i'm saying how they work together like isn't that a wonderful thing about a film like this is you can interpret it both ways and i could say yeah josh i think you're right and you could you know say oh yeah i see your point too but um you know, what you can't say is that like every time in this film that like LaMotta lost to Robinson on points, you you saw the crowd was going crazy. And, you know, um, they fought six times and Robinson won five. And maybe um, I'm sure there are boxing historians who said maybe it should have been four to two or three to three. And um, I think you're seeing that like he was a people's champion in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, but even that response, I mean, there's the I think it's the first uh, fight scene in the movie. And the audience, they're not just like, oh, boo, we think Jake LaMotta should have won. They have a fucking riot, a literal riot. So it's even the, the boxing That's so fans, awesome. the audience, <laughs> I think that Scorsese is showing, look at how savage this is. Look at how brutal and bloodthirsty this is. And it's reflected in the personal life of this guy who is a savage, bloodthirsty brute. And not just that, Josh, as as the film points out, you know, boxing was controlled by the mafia at this point in time right. for Lamada to get that shot at the title. He had to throw a fight. And, you know, that's the first time we really see him break down when he has given up whatever integrity he has as a fighter to advance uh, his career. So that's all part of the conversation. I also think that, um, you know, Nicholas uh, Colin Santo, uh, who 
coach from Cheers who plays Tommy, the uh, mob boss, is really, really good in this movie. I mean, not that it's a surprise that anyone's really good, right? But like, he does stand out as a very quiet, like, deft of hand. You know, he knows his business and he's going to run his business the way he wants to type uh, character. Yeah, the mobsters are very believable. I mean, Frank Vincent, who went on to play like a billion mobsters, I think um, he's also very good as is it Sal, I think, who's the the he's a friend of Joey's and is always trying to ingratiate himself and and, uh, you know, get get uh, Jake to to join up or whatever. He's also very good. So he's Salvi Bats in this one. And then in um, go. Goodfellas, he's Billy Bats. And then he's Frank <laughs> Marino in Casino. And then, uh, you know, he had his swan song as Phil leotardo and the soprano so yeah yeah, he made a career of these kind of guys but uh you know like if you look at salvi versus uh phil leotardo they're different characters but i also like we're talking about the insecurities of all these macho men and you see this in the mobsters too you know when they're at the you know the nike the cobra cabana what's what's the matter he he can't come say hi what joey he can't come say hi to us you know like they're offended and insulted by the littlest things right yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely a movie amongst all these characters about extremely insecure men who have to resort to this violence and bluster to prove to themselves and to other people that they're not insecure, and it only makes them look worse. And meanwhile, we have the Vicky character, Kathy Moriarty, who you mentioned, like, man, more than, more than holds her own against these powerful men. And she's 18 and, you know, physically striking as the character is supposed to be but really she's a strong character who's trapped and trapped for a long time right and i think it gives you that sense of like you know you can watch this movie and see how he treats her and think why just leave just leave already but you know the way that those options are so limited especially in the 40s and 50s for women to be able to do that and they've got three kids and it's just difficult and i think she shows you those conflicted emotions where she does have a love for him, even if we as the audience can think, why, why would you do that? It's, it's, it's strong and it's real to her. And I think she conveys that really well. And then of course, when she finally does leave him, it's this very like quiet moment. It's not the big, huge blow up earlier in the movie where she's going to leave and she doesn't. It's years later and she's just in a car and she's like, Jake, I'm leaving you. Goodbye. And she drives off. And I, I like that as well. I want to talk about those, you know, cause did Nero famously gained 60 pounds for those scenes and you 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 get this different uh character there right gone is all the bluster not that there's not still a machismo about him but he's beaten down his career is over he's surviving on this nightclub circuit and uh you know he's having trouble breathing because of his weight and all the beatings he's taken really just um a transformative performance by de niro it is. And this was at a time when I think maybe there weren't as many of these, you know, actors going to these extreme physical transformations or whatever that we we read about a lot more now and uh, De Niro doing it. I feel like now if, if an actor does that, they do this under very close supervision of like personal trainers and you would have to stuff. Right. Yeah. And De Niro just like flew to Europe and ate a bunch of French food for two months and got <laughs> fat. And I mean, right. and they said it affected his health. Right, right. It was very unhealthy. But in, in a way, it's also kind of amazing that he just was like, how will I gain weight? I will go to France and eat decadent food. Well, and then you think of it from a production standpoint, we're going to shut down production while 
Robert De Niro goes and eats for three months. You know, it's a it's a different way of movie making, right? Right. Well, I think like what is it? Uh, Castaway when Tom Hanks did the opposite and he had to lose all that weight to play the emaciated, you know, version of his character. And they shut that they shut that film down so long that the director went and made another movie in the meantime. So it does happen. But yes, it's certainly rare and, and rarer at this time. And that movie was The Elephant Man. Oh, wait, no, I'm confusing our episodes. So. Yeah, exactly. So, Josh, I want one thing, though, that I'm excited about is, like you said, you're not a sports fan. You're obviously not a boxing fan. Uh, we have a protagonist who you hate. And yet this movie kept you engaged and into it the whole time. I think that speaks to um, just how powerful it is. Yeah, I mean, and and I, I think I still have a kind of a distance to this. I mean, I liked it more or appreciated it more than the first time, but I still have this feeling that I have about a lot of Scorsese movies where it's like, wow, that's a really well-made movie, but I didn't necessarily like, I wasn't as as immersed in it as I could have been, but but you're right. I, and I think that's one of the the real strengths of this film. And uh, we've talked about plenty of times about movies where it's like, oh, these characters are unlikable and that doesn't necessarily make it a bad movie. But I think if you have characters who are so unlikable that you really need to work to make them, you, they have to be interesting. There has to be something that compels you to keep watching them. And even Scorsese isn't necessarily always good at this. You know, we talked about New York, New York, another movie starring Robert De Niro as this right. awful macho guy. And that movie is just a, a huge chore to watch. It's extremely unpleasant to watch and not rewarding in any way. But I feel like this movie is because we're watching the journey of this guy and we see how his flaws sort of uh, lead to his downfall or at least uh, make him lose things that are so important to him. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was pretty fascinated. I think the craft makes a big difference. The acting is is really strong. I wouldn't call this one of my favorite films or even my favorite Scorsese. Uh, that's film. okay. Yeah. But I, I mean, I can see why it's so revered. I can really, I can appreciate it. Even if it's not the kind of movie that I would say, Oh, I really, I can't wait. I would love to watch this again. What is your favorite Scorsese film? Uh, well, well, maybe, I don't know. We'll get to that. I, there's still, there's still a lot of big major Scorsese films that I haven't seen. And I, I feel like I end up appreciating more sort of poppy Scorsese movies. I love The Aviator. I I, I love The Aviator too. That's a brilliant yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah, and and I recently watched uh had never seen and I was writing something about Tom Cruise movies and I watched The Color of Money, which is maybe one of the most like Hollywoodish Scorsese movies that he ever made, and I just thought it was fantastic. It was so so entertaining. It was really good. Paul Newman won uh best actor for that. And deservedly so. It's a great movie and I, I underrated maybe now because People dismiss it as like a, a Hollywoodish kind of thing for Scorsese. It's also not easy to make a sequel to something that came 20 years before it, but that's okay. Whatever. Right, that too. Yeah. Dave, do you have a favorite Scorsese movie? That's so tough. Uh, I mean, probably Goodfellas, but I mean, it's so, so hard. There's so many good ones. I love Bringing Out the Dead. I just rewatched that last year and. That blew me away too. I know. I, I'm I'm interested in Josh, like you're talking about going and revisiting like the lesser ones at this point in time, like a bringing out the dead or something like that, just to just to see what maybe I didn't see the first time I watched them. Yeah, I haven't seen Bringing Out the Dead. I was actually I was also writing about Nicolas Cage movies a while back, and that was one that I was going to try to get to, and I just didn't have the chance. But 
Uh, I feel like that's one that's gotten a, a big reassessment, especially as yeah. Nicolas Cage himself has been getting this sure. reassessment. It's gone along yeah. with that. Yeah. Definitely. And as I've said before, uh, it's so funny to me because King of Comedy in 83, another De Niro uh, Scorsese uh, collaboration was not that well regarded, not that big of a hit. And you could tell watching it, uh, you know, when I watched it in college, I was like, man, this thing was just generations ahead of its time and really was. And, you know, so much so that uh, we see so much of those influences in Joker that basically we're, we're playing off of those character traits from King of Comedy. Um, but uh, I, I know this is a, a little more legacy stuff. So getting back to our general thoughts on Raging Bull. Dave, did you want to add anything else? The only other thing that we didn't really quite get into that much is how darkly funny it is. I mean, it, there's a lot of like really funny moments, even though it's also super dark and and he is a very scary person. I mean, it, there's a lot of like laugh out loud moments too. Just, you know, the the tough guy stuff. And uh, one, one line that I wrote down is when he first brings uh, Vicky, the, the girl yeah, home. Uh, and he's like, that's the dining room. That's the bird. It was the bird. It's dead. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like lines yeah. like that. Just throw away things. So funny. And even if that bird was alive, that still would have been funny. The point that that's how, like how he kind of describes what's going on there. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. And I think that's another thing that this movie isn't afraid to let you laugh at Jake LaMotta. Like, yes. show you that this is a ridiculous guy and you can feel comfortable laughing at how ridiculous he is or how pathetic he is at times. Absolutely. It's uh, Scorsese, you know, I mean, Goodfellas is full of hilarious stuff and Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, there's a lot of humor to his movies, but there aren't a lot of jokes, which I love. They're, you're, they're playing the reality of the situation. Yeah. Right. And this is another one of those classic movies, too, where there are certain things that have been quoted or parodied so much right. that they almost become funny. I mean, the scene where he confronts uh, the brother about he thinks has who's has slept with Vicky. That's yeah, what know, I referenced that, in the beginning and everything. Right, right. And you know that I heard things. I heard things, you know, or or <laughs> I feel like there's been so many uh, things where, you know, some characters like you fuck my wife, you fuck my wife. And and I, I almost had forgotten. I was like, oh yeah, that was from a sketch that like an SNL sketch that I always think of De Niro being in, but really it's from this movie. Right. Um, I mean, I think the waiting for Guffman audition where the guy, you know, does that monologue. Did he fuck my <laughs> wife? You know, and that, that's yeah. what he chose as his monologue piece. <laughs> right. So it's almost hard. I, I feel like this is, I've probably brought this up uh, about any number of classic movies that it's almost hard to take seriously moments like that, that, you know, so well from parodies, and memes and things like that. It's, you're like, oh wait, no, this is a powerful thing here and try to remember how it was taken at the moment that people first saw it. And th that scene especially, I think more than anything else in this movie is 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 that. Did you guys notice uh, John Turturro as one of the kind of uh, guys in the club at one point in time? He's just no, sitting I, at a table with them. I read no. that. I think he's on screen for like 10 seconds. So, yeah. Uh, no. And then Scorsese's dad is in this one too as a, a little bit but uh yeah josh that's pretty much uh i think you know now that we got to hear you do an impression i have nothing else to add to this segment <laughs> yeah i think so as well so should we uh should we rate this one out of uh i don't know five uh bloody noses or something like that uh, five did you fuck my wives <laughs> sure five 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 did you fuck my wives yeah it's a mormon movie now <laughs> 
it gets four and a half for me. Uh, if you give it five, I'm a hundred percent with you. If you give it four, I'm a hundred percent with you. I give it four and a half. It's a, a masterpiece. Four and a half. Did you fuck my wives? I'm going to give it four. Did you fuck my wives? And, and it certainly is a masterpiece. It's a movie that, like I said, may not be on my favorites list, but is, is really a, just an amazing achievement. So I will, I will give it four. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going all the way to five guys, five yeah. my wives. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of raging bull. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1980. We are talking about Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. And we have talked a lot about the legacy of this film just in terms of its reputation and how it's grown over time. And at this point is really considered one of the greatest movies ever made, as well as, of course, one of the greatest boxing movies, one of the greatest sports movies. Um, and with that, of course, comes being incredibly influential uh, I, I feel like this movie led to grittier approaches in movies about boxers and sports movies in general. I agree. Yeah, I agree. There were a lot of uh, Pauline Kael in her review talks a lot about boxing movies from the 40s and how they were so formulaic and they're all following this certain sort of pattern. And, I, and I've seen a few of those, not that many, but. Certainly, I think this opens up the idea of showing the violence and the brutality, and especially in movies about boxers or maybe about like MMA fighters, as we get into now, where the sport is inherently violent, I think filmmakers are more willing to show the violence in the personal lives of these characters. I think the influence goes all throughout. And like you said, the parodies go all throughout. I remember the uh, the episode of The Simpsons where Homer became a uh, like a boxcar fighter or something like that, you know, and um, it's all there. Uh, Josh, just to jump back to the, did you fuck my wife thing? Like, um, cause I was thinking about it when we said it, there are all those parodies, but all those parodies, like, you know, De Niro, the obvious way to play that would have been like him yelling at Joe, at his brother. Like, you know, he's afraid that uh, he's paranoid that everyone's had sex with his wife and now he's confronting his brother. And De Niro does it in the ex opposite way that you would think that a character with such rage would play that. And it's that's again, goes to the brilliance of it. Right. And I think the way he does that is because it's to him, it's not a question. He is now 100% convinced that his mm -hmm. brother fucked his wife. And no matter what the brother says, he is not going to believe anything else. And so it's just like, it's a statement more than a question. And that's why he presents it that way. I think you fucking screwball you. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, um, as you mentioned, Scorsese and De Niro, this is, uh, and Scorsese and 10 Tesh, movies. Yeah. yeah. These are amazing collaborations. This was, I think, was this the, this was the fourth movie already that Scorsese and De Niro had made together. And they went on to make, a bunch more. I in this period, they did the King of Comedy, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Casino, and then there was this long stretch where they didn't work together. Scorsese, you know, a lot of people said, "Oh, he moved on to work with Leonardo DiCaprio as his new muse or whatever." And then De Niro moved on to the uh, very, very long, sad, not giving a shit phase of his career. Uh, but they did reunite for The Irishman a couple of years ago, and now are working on a new film, the, the next Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which also features Leonardo DiCaprio. So it's the, the union of the sort of two Scorsese eras 
which hopefully will be uh, fascinating. Look, I look forward to seeing that. I think so. I mean, you know, it's um, I knew you were going to bring up that whole period of De Niro, you know, just being a comedian or something. And a lot of it is he just seems to like to work. But at the same time, he was out there producing movies. He was dealing, you know, Tribeca Film Festival, obviously the Nobu restaurant. So um, but these guys have done 10 features together. I do. Lo- and they acted together in Shark Tale, if you remember. Oh, his voice. oh so, man. have you mm, seen Shark Tale? It is. So I think bad. probably with you. But um, but yeah, no, it's it seems like, you know, uh, look, he goes to his well, right? Pesci's in the well. Kaitel is in the well. Uh, DiCaprio's in the well. And like, it's pretty awesome that he has that well. It's interesting that these are all like men, right? You know, I don't know. Um, you know, is it Ileana Douglas maybe that he works with time and again? I don't know. But um, Killers of Flower Moon, he's got Apple money behind it. It's going to be everything. As it's going to have every chance to be as great as it should be. Just like The Irishman, which I loved. Yeah, and I wasn't a big fan of The Irishman, but I do appreciate Scorsese getting these massive, massive amounts of money to make movies that are not exactly uh, mainstream blockbusters anymore and make them four hours long or however long The Irishman was. Yeah, but he's also doing a lot of these music documentaries, right? He did George Harrison and did he do Bob Dylan and The Stones already, right? And now he's doing Grateful Dead with Jonah Hill, so... And then after that, he's going to do the Teddy Roosevelt movie, I think, with DiCaprio also. So, um, look, let this guy work as long as he can work. Let's take it all. Yeah, absolutely. He's, I think, like Spielberg, he's someone who always has a lot of projects in development and a lot of them don't always come to fruition. But hopefully those things will happen. Uh, I mean, The Irishman was one of those projects. Like, I feel like his last few films, Silence and The Irishman and now Killers of the Flower Moon, were all these projects that he was trying to get made for a very, very long time and then finally was able to line up the you know amount of money that he needs thanks to uh, you know streaming and stuff like that, where they'll give him this, this huge amount of money to make these movies. Right. And if that's the form now, that's what the form is. Um... You know, De Niro, we've talked about before. I, as I said, you know, I, I, I love him in uh, The Deer Hunter and in so many movies. But um, what's interesting is he fought three times when he was training for this and he won two out of those three fights. And LaMotta, being uh, a boxing promoter uh, as well as a boxer, said that uh, De Niro is one of the, the 20 best middleweights of all time. So that's fun. <laughs> Well, if we learn anything from this movie is is that Jake LaMotta is full of shit. So I'm not sure if I would buy that. But But, um, he's come back, you know, De Niro with Irishman and Silver Linings Playbook and Joker. And he's got that movie Amsterdam with David O. Russell coming out. And also he's playing Sebastian Maniscalco's father in About My Father, the Sebastian Maniscalco movie. Yeah. See, that's what he's doing. I mean, yes, he's come back. But those movies are like little drops in the course of a decade or more where he's also just in like terrible, like straight to VOD thrillers and comedies, you know, stuff like the war with grandpa. And, and not only are these Mm. movies bad, but De Niro is not even putting in an effort in these films. He's barely showing up for them. And that seems to be the case for him in most of the work he does now. It's, I mean, at the same time, like something like the Irishman, he just, he just, does great or you know heat in the mid 90s or something like that yeah um, he Heat came out 27 years ago like i love heat but that was a very long time i, I mean silver i thought silver linings playbook was awesome that that was yes you know, but even so. that was it was 10 years ago i think probably so i'm just saying know. he still has it I, look he's a guy who likes to 
we've talked about these guys who just likes to continue acting. And yeah, I get it. You know, a lot of this stuff isn't, isn't the deer hunter that he's doing. Well, right. I mean, and I guess he likes to continue acting, but you watch these movies and you don't get the impression that he's like, he likes being in them. You know, what I wanted to talk about is the two movies he directed because I love a Bronx tale. And then I don't think he directed good shepherd, right? Which none of us really liked, I think. Right. Yeah. I I never, I never saw a Bronx tale, although I saw it on stage here in Vegas, the one man show. Yeah. I think I saw that too. Yeah. That was cool. Uh, yeah, The Good Shepherd was not great, I think. I don't remember a ton about that movie. But uh, that's a good segue to talk about Joe Pesci because uh, the, the Good Shepherd, I think he did uh, a cameo in that film, was one of his uh, few roles that he's done since his retirement in 1999. Of course, he came back in a big way for The Irishman, but you know had been retired for a long time. But before that, like you said, Became such a huge star in the 90s. My Cousin Vinny, uh, The Lethal Weapon, the later Home Alone movies. Yeah, Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Uh, you know, won an Oscar for Goodfellas. And, and he was uh, in comedies. He was in gangster movies. And he just, he was a persona, I think. You know, he was this sort of pop culture figure too. You know, people do the impression he's got the distinctive voice. He's got that look. He's very short. He really, you, you know, he stands out in that way. He does. At the same time, if he didn't want to retire, he'd be working constantly, as we know. And and I think the Irishman is a great and even Raging Bull also like, you know, he shows so many layers of what he's capable of. He's not just, you know, what am I funny like a clown? Right. Like that guy that we all came to know, um, which uh, that was what he won the Oscar for. But like the Irishman, he's so methodical and calculating. And I thought it was a masterful performance. And um, I've never heard any of his albums. Oh, yeah, he did. do that. Of course. Right. He was, uh, you know, in the very, very early days of the the four seasons, he was uh, in like part of that. Uh, I don't know if he was in the group, but he was in that sort of circle. He was a friend of theirs. He worked with them or whatever. So, you know, if you, I think if you watch the movie, the Jersey Boys movie, he's a character in it. I want to yeah. say briefly. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that, but I think he is. So, you know, quite a history there uh, for for old Joe Pesci. Josh, tell me about Kathy Moriarty. Well, the thing about Kathy Moriarty is, I mean, so this was her first role and obviously was got her a huge amount of acclaim. And she did, I think, one or two more movies right after this, including something that we talked about in our Blues Brothers episode, Neighbors, the Dan Aykroyd, uh, John Belushi film. And in, I think it was 1981 or 1982, she was in this horrible car accident and didn't work for like six years. And so her momentum as a star, I mean, obviously her health is important and obviously she needed a long time to recover, but I think that kind of killed the momentum that she might've had as this breakout star. And when she came back in the late 80s, it was more in terms of what you were talking about, smaller roles, B-movies, TV appearances, and she works steadily. And every right. so often she'll, she'll, she'll show up in a, in a more respectable thing and she'll do a good job. But, um, and she has a very distinctive presence. She has that, that very husky voice that's very recognizable. Um, but I think that whatever could have propelled her to the next level as after she broke out with this movie was stalled and she never really was able to fully recover that. So that's the way it just seems to me looking from the outside. Mm. All right. Um, LaMotta was a successful uh, actor as well. He was in 15 movies, including The Hustler. He was on episodes of Car 54, Where Are You? And 
He even appeared in Guys and Dolls on stage with Alan King and Jerry Orbach. For a guy who had 106 fights and that type of fighter to have the mental faculties to do any of that is impressive. I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think, as a comedian, what do you think of Jake LaMotta as a, as a stand-up comic? <laughs> I mean, look, it, it's funny. I mean, look, his act is, is not, uh, it's a patter act, right? And it's, uh, I mean, there's, we saw this a few years ago when uh, Stormy Daniels was going on stage and her whole thing was that she had sex with Donald Trump, right? You know, there's always going to be stuff like that. And, um, and, and there's always room for those performers. That's fine. Um, you know, what to me was more interesting was the nightclub scene back then when you were there to kind of host the evening and introduce the burlesque dancer and keep the show going. And of course he would take it personally anyway. Right. You know, but, um, but no, it's like, he, he was more of a personality than a, than a, a comedian, let's say. All right. Uh, the one other thing before we move on to the sequel that I did want to say about Jake LaMotta, that this is, I mean, this is something from like IMDb trivia and it may or may not be true, but supposedly when Jake LaMotta watched this movie, uh, it, it gave him that level of self-awareness that I guess he'd ever had. And he, he asked Vicky, uh, who, as you said, you know, they'd been divorced for many, many years, but remained friends. And of course, you know, she had seen the movie too and asked her, was I really like that? And she said, you were worse. So uh, amazing to think of Jake LaMotta being worse than he is portrayed in this film. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So Josh, uh, Paul Schrader, we mentioned still going strong. I love, I think first reformed is probably one of my favorite movies of the last five, 10 years. Uh, Card counter last year, eh, but he's doing another one called master gardener. And uh, he's always interested. I like that. He's still getting movies made. Yeah. And Schrader, whether just as a writer, you know, he worked with Scorsese several times or as a director himself, he is always fascinated by these studies of these kind of flawed, insecure, macho men, you know, all the way up through the card counter. And that's something that he comes back to again and again and and in a, in a lot of fascinating ways, I think. And he's so important to New Hollywood that we talk about in the 70s with all these directors, you know. He he was part of the writing team uh, on Taxi Driver, and then you know in the eighties he did Last Temptation of Christ, and then the nineties bringing out the dead. But you know when we talk about that new Hollywood, and you got Michael Chapman filming this thing, who we've talked about in our Space Jam episode. Um, I don't know how he didn't win, like I said, best uh, cinematography here, but he shot the Last Detail, he shot Taxi Driver, he shot the Last Waltz. And uh, Josh, in the 80s, he shot uh, Scrooge in Kindergarten Cop. So, ha, 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 Kindergarten Cop. Right. With Kathy Moriarty. Right. Perfect. <laughs> Boom. And C-3PO. I would love to see C-3PO <laughs> in Kindergarten Cop somehow. Maybe he can be in the next Kindergarten Cop sequel or something. Um, and speaking of sequels, we, we do want to mention The Bronx Bull, a.k.a. Raging Bull 2, the uh, 2016 movie that Jake LaMotta was also involved with. And there was a whole lawsuit. And eventually the producers of this film were not allowed to call it Raging Bull 2, even though the title Raging Bull comes from LaMotta's book. It didn't come from Scorsese's film, but because it was so associated with this, they felt like it was obviously it was meant to capitalize on the movie. So eventually the, the movie was titled The Bronx Bull. Instead, uh, it stars William Forsythe as Jake LaMotta and is sort of a prequel and sort of a sequel, basically just fills in various gaps. And, you know, over time, we we used to chastise Dave for not even watching 
any of the movies that we talked about. And Dave has gotten so much better that Dave watched all of the Bronx Bowl. What did you think? I sure did. Oh, terrible. Just terrible. But <laughs> it's a it, it's a fun, so bad it's good movie. I mean, there's some everybody's overacting so much. Uh, you know, Paul Sorvino especially is my favorite part of it as uh, Jake LaMotta's dad, who you know, of course, smacks him around a bunch and yells in his face a whole lot. And uh, it, it's every stereotype that you could possibly imagine. My biggest takeaway, though, is just how fast paced this movie is. It's just boom, boom, boom from bouncing between the future, the past, in the middle of things happening during the events of Raging Bull, back to the future, back to the past. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, a real mess of a movie. Yeah, I, I was trying to watch it. I made it through about 40 minutes and, and then I ran out of time, but I yeah. felt like that was enough. And yeah, it's very confusing because it jumps around so much and it wants to just fill in those gaps. So it's like, here's stuff that happened before Raging Bull. Here's stuff that happened after Raging Bull. And one, one thing that I was curious about watching Raging Bull was like, did Jake LaMotta and his brother ever really reconcile? Because we have this mm -hmm. scene... Where right. he kind of appro approaches him and Jake tries to do it and Joey doesn't really seem like he's going for it. And he says, oh, I'll call you. And we never find out if that happens. And I thought maybe the Bronx Bull will tell me. But Joey is not even a character in the Bronx Bull. So we lost. Not him. even Instead, a character. Were you able to find out any of that in any I research? Didn't, I didn't find anything about it. And, you know, of course, there's liberties taken. For all we know, that was all fictional anyway. So I don't know. But, you know, Jake LaMotta lived all, you know, he died in 2017. He lived a long time after this film was made and would have had a chance to, to maybe reconcile later. So I, I don't know. I don't know. And sadly, the Bronx Bowl did not tell me. Um, it it, it kind of replaces that relationship with, as Dave was saying, the Paul Sorvino as the dad, who was a character that uh, across the various drafts of Raging Bull, they ended up eliminating the dad as a character in that film, but they put him back in the Bronx Bowl. So don't watch it. It's bad. Mm, okay, I won't. <laughs> yeah. But Dave, thank you for your service in watching yes. that whole film for us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my job. My job. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anything else on the legacy of this film you want to mention, Jason? I think we've covered it. It's the first movie ever to make the National Film Registry in its first year of eligibility, which I think is apropos. But um, no, what else is there to say, Josh? Well, of course, the most important legacy of this film is that it makes Martin Scorsese the first filmmaker to have three episodes of Awesome Movie Year devoted to his work. So that is right there, the best achievement of all. Uh, that's pretty good, although I thought Rob Reiner would have gotten there by now. No, but... no. Well, we're going to have to replace Rob Reiner as our like patron director or whatever, because he only has two episodes. Or we're going to have to quickly do another <laughs> Rob Reiner episode. Hey, 92 <laughs> coming up. I think we all know that can happen. Hey, Josh. You know what I found interesting is uh, Scorsese, nine Best Picture and Best Director nods he won for The Departed. His actors have received 24 actor nominations, and they've won all the big ones. De Niro, Best Actor, Newman, Best Actor, Ellen Burstyn, Best Actress for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Joe Pesci, Supporting Actor for uh you know goodfellas and Kate blanchett for the aviator supporting actress yeah he's i mean obviously an amazing director of actors and knows how to you know as we were saying pick people like joe pesci and kathy moriarty out of obscurity or give big stars like leonardo dicaprio an, a, a dimension to their work that they haven't had before so an amazing talent obviously thankfully someone said it <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. That well, Martin been, Scorsese is a good director. We've been we've been saying it for the last hour, and I think we are done saying it. So let's that, let's wrap this up here, huh? Yes. That is Raging Bull, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, if you found this, especially on Patreon, I'm sure you already do, but check us out on social media. Yeah, check us out on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. My website, go for Jason, got knocked out by Sugar Ray Robinson five times. Uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. And if you want to line Dave's pockets money that Josh and I never see, go to that Patreon that you guys are talking about by David Rosen. Yes. And if you're listening to this on the by David Rosen Patreon, the produced by David Rosen Patreon, we really appreciate it. Dave appreciates it. Especially too. that blood sucking leech, Dave. Thank you for signing up <laughs> to the Patreon. You're going to make people cancel, Jason, because I, I'm like, I'm like a mob so- boss, uh, you know, one, yeah. one of these guys yeah. Dave making Jason take boss. the fall. Yeah, uh, I'm happy that they're signed up. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever can help Dave out. We're, we're for. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, everyone. If you are listening on Patreon and thank you if you're not and you are listening to this later on. And uh, check me out at joshbellhateseverything.com. There's a few okay things there. At Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And in addition to the Patreon, you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And uh, also the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group. Uh, thanks again. You know, this season we got a lot of great feedback on 1980 and we look forward to more feedback on our future episodes uh if you are listening to this on patreon then you can tune in for our 1992 season coming up soon and if you're listening to this later on you can tune in for some other future thing that we have yet to plan so (laughs) that's all thanks for listening to awesome movie year thank you for listening to awesome movie year Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. You're a nut. I'm not staying in this nut house with you.